Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. Today we're talking about guilty pleasures. And I'm Megan Lee. I'm Lucy Hounsome. And I'm Charlotte Bond. Well, we're obviously concerned here at Breaking the Glass Slipper with increasing the positive representation of women in genre fiction. This doesn't preclude us from enjoying our fair share of less equality-minded tales. There are plenty of cock-heavy stories that tickle my fancy, along with a few damsel in distress tales of airheaded women with no ability to look after themselves. Now, I can't possibly be alone in this, girls, so <laughs> let's talk about some of our favourite guilty pleasures and what you know about those favourites that you have that you actually can now look at and go, oh, okay, I recognise that there's a little bit of a problem there, but oh, I still, I still really enjoy it. Um, well... Um, this is going to be a bit of a contentious one, and and please don't take it the wrong way um, when I say the Princess Bride. Oh, that was <laughs> on my list as well. Um, really, because I love the Princess Bride, and and actually, you know, it, I, it's very hard to say that there's anything really wrong with it because okay, Buttercup is just not very smart, and you know that's okay because you know some of us aren't very smart and yes she makes really stupid decisions and yes wesley is really exasperated by her but that's why he loves her (laughs) i agree i mean she doesn't really have much to do by way of a heroine and she kind of she kind of flounces about and, and has a bit of an attitude and she does get rescued at the end but then that's okay because i think the point of buttercup is that she is a traditional princess but just a really surly one. So she doesn't necessarily faint and and talk to, you know, woodland animals and things like that. She's just a bit more kind of like petulance, the wrong word, but just kind of like, oh, no, I'm I'm going to kill myself later. And then she goes, yes, that's nice, dear. (laughs) So it's not, she's kind of subverting it in a different way. But I must admit that made my list of of things as well, because she just doesn't really have much agency. And she, despite being a title character, is just there to be rescued. And yet it works because it, you know, all the others have very strange warped ideas as well. So somehow she fits in perfectly. Okay, yeah, I see where you're coming from. I mean, I, I never thought of that as a guilty one. I mean, I definitely totally admit to that under normal circumstances, though I also don't have much of a filter. So, you know, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, not a, it's not a very guilty one because I feel like I, I don't want to make excuses for it because it's just a great film and it's a great book. And um, and there's nothing really wrong with with her characterization. Uh, she is who she is. Um, you know, we can't all be super smart rocket scientists. I don't know. Well, I think it's kind of guilty pleasure because people outside the genre probably don't get how they're they don't get how they're being so completely one way. The characters are so completely one way that it actually turns it into a joke. I remember because I watched it first. <laughs> Oh, this is my childhood, basically. At six o'clock on BBC, BBC Two when they were uh, when I was having my dinner, and I remember my father coming in and saying, "Oh, you're not still watching that terrible film, are you?" But he just didn't really appreciate it from that point of view because I don't really think he got the the way that it's poking fun and it's not supposed to be taken seriously. And I think some people just look at it and go, oh, "It's a terrible film. They should have, you know, made it better, like Lord of the Rings or something." So I think it does depend on your background as to whether you find it really fantastic or whether you find it really irritating which is why I tend to lump it as a guilty pleasure because you say it to some people and they're like what oh that was terrible Phil so that's why it goes under my guilty pleasure list but here we are I've got one that uh, that shows my age Willow do you remember watching that <gasps> that's on my list as well there we go great yes. minds think alike yes I, I love it. <laughs> it's on my to be watched list ah uh, definitely worth watching but but I suppose it's you need to watch it kind of appreciating what they had at the time because it's 
I love the way they've got this. Um, she's jo- Joanne Wally, isn't she? She goes on to become Joanne Wally Kilmer, I think. Yes. But the heroine in it, yeah. The, loses him again. Daughter, but... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the daughter. And they dress her all up as, as this sort of barbarian princess and, and you know, this great fighter who can, who's the only one who can stand up to her mother, Queen Bavmorda. But she still ends up being rescued and, you know, her hair starts to come down and she starts looking less like a fighter and, and more like a, a girly girl, particularly when Val Kilmer's character accidentally falls in love with her. Um, so I kind of I kind of felt that they had the right idea and then they just kind of got a bit lost along the way and it all ended up turning up very badly. But, yeah, uh, that, my main but, issue with Saoirse is the fact that she switches sides at the moment that she kisses Val Kilmer. She, there's no sort of character um, character motivation or any kind of set up for that change of heart other than the fact that she, you know, has a hot piece of ass interested in her. And that's the <laughs> bit that irritates me. But I still love the film. If we're going to be talking about Val Kilmer, um, I know it's not science fiction, fantasy, it's science fiction, fantasy and horror, but I have to have a bit of a shout out for Tombstone because that was, that's a really good little film filled with men just being men and messing around with women and women like fainting and taking laudanum everywhere, but still really good. Um, and it's just come to my mind because, you know, Val Kilmer and being a typical man's man kind of thing. <laughs> sure. But moving this away from from movies and thinking of books, um, I was actually thinking of The Terror by Dan Simmons, which is one of my favourite horror novels, which I reread. Well, it used to be annually, and then I could pretty much quote it, so it's now kind of every every two years. But that's about um, the Erebus and the Terror, who were um, John Franklin ships that went to try and find the Northwest Passage. And what um, what Simmons does is he takes a load of history. Um, and also rather peculiar history because they found all sorts of strange things when they went looking for the expedition. And he weaves it into this book that's big enough to be a doorstop, to be honest. It is absolutely huge. And he manages to fill the pages with basically a load of men trapped aboard a boat and what happens to them with both sickness and um sexual relations um and going you know starving and getting scurvy and all this kind of thing and there's there is one woman in it and they pretty much all hate her and call her a witch and she has sort of a key point at the end but i really love that book and i don't you know it, because it's a load of men stuck in a boat in the arctic if you did have any women with it apart from this one it would look really really silly but it's just such a brilliant book and i don't you know i don't look at it and go oh it needs more women i just look at it and go it's perfect just as it is it's absolutely brilliant I actually have a book on my list, or well, a trilogy, written by a woman who I and I love this trilogy, uh, but the Farseer trilogy by Robin Hobb. In terms oh, of brilliant, it's it's a brilliant series. But then I was actually, you know, thinking about this sort of topic, and and if you think about things that technically there's not a lot of women with agency in that book, or that have much to do other than Ketrickin and. You know, like Mo- Molly's very passive. She's easily manipulated. It's she doesn't really have anything to do. You know, patience is is helpful, but not very important to the story. Um, so, just as as a general rule, it's always men. Just that, you know, it is a very male driven book yes. trilogy. Yeah, well, yeah. but at the same time, I still love it, and I I don't really see that there is a problem there. Um, I didn't. Well, at least when I read it, I didn't feel. A desperate need for that but maybe that's because I'm so used to seeing that I don't know but I did think mm. of that one well uh the another fantasy uh, very popular fantasy series I was thinking about was the Belgariad and the Malorian David Eddings yes which 
<laughs> is a huge guilty pleasure for me. It's a real comfort read. I always take it off the shelf if I'm just feeling in need of sustenance. <laughs> and um, it's funny because he actually has quite a lot of, of female characters with with agency um, uh, yeah, in, in those books. Polgar is amazing. Polgara, yeah, yeah. And, and Sinidra, the princess, um, and Adara, that she doesn't have a lot of agency, she just have um, Petal's babies, which is slightly okay, you know, that's fine, that's fine, you know. <laughs> um, but Some women want that life, Lucy. Sort of good... <laughs> Yeah, that, that's okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's, there's um, it's it's kind of more. I almost thought it's it's more racial stereotypes that it that Eddings it perpetrates. Um, there's a lot of uh, slanty-eyed Murgos going on there. Yes, and and yeah. how evil they are. And look, look, there's a nice Smurgo, but shock horror, he's half Drasnian. That i.e. he's half western so that makes him okay he's not a full-blooded murder because as we all know they're all evil like blanket and okay i love this series but it's it's just very um it's very very kind of stereotypical it it follows the tropes that we've all come to know and love that like fantasy commercial fantasy at least is built upon you know over the last like 30 40 years yeah well i mean all the sort of cultures and things in that that series they all have defining characteristics so like you know everyone from this place is good at trading swinging a yeah yeah or yeah or swinging a two-handed weapon <laughs> yeah <laughs> <coughs> cough cough uh cherix <laughs> which is you know we know now well we we should have known then as well but obviously it's ridiculous not everyone from perth western australia is as amazing as i am um, you know unfortunately <gasps> <laughs> But they have a lot to live up to to be fair megan <laughs> i know i know it's true <laughs> i'm such a <modesty. laughs> all right well you guys have covered horror we've covered some fantasy i'm gonna throw in um a science fiction novel um so the moon is a harsh mistress by robert heinlein so as a writer um and particularly with this this book as well you know he sort of talked a lot about equality and you know that he was really liberal-minded and trying to go aim aim to portray equality and and to set up cultures where it was different from what we knew and he did this to an extent and in this um in this book what was really disappointing is that he starts off so well like he's he gives us this female character wyo and she's you know she's got spunk she's got attitude she's got you know chutzpah she gets out there and just goes for it but she just quickly loses this intensity and you get kind of a basic stereotypical outline of her character. She's She ends up becoming just a yes woman to the main character. She's just there to kind of do that thing where people say, oh, it needs to be diverse. We need to have we need to have a woman in it. So I've added her, and oh yeah, I've, I've brought her in in a really great way, and then, uh, well, you know, she's just there. But she's not you know, I didn't actually think of anything important for her to do. So she's just there. Um, <laughs> so, you know, when, when she, in, so part of that um, story is all about like a political revolution. And she's one of the, the key figures that actually prompts the main, the, the protagonist to get on board with this revolution. And then once she sort of sparks him on his path, she becomes very much a background player, and that's really rather disappointing. However, I still enjoyed the book. 
you know, talking about science fiction, um, we've, we've covered this in a previous episode. I think it was you, Megan, who mentioned it, but I'm mentioning it again because it's one of my favourite films. Um, Fifth Element. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah, really interesting one because uh, it probably, it's a, I think it qualifies as a guilty pleasure because of what we kind of picked up on before when we said that, you know... Um, <laughs> Like she's the the main she is the fifth element she's the main character she should be the main character but she isn't and actually half of the film is more than half of the film is driven by um you know bruce willis's actions and his storyline and he, he is the one who um you know makes things happen and and actually at the end it's like you you know, <laughs> you know it is she won't basically save the world until he says that he loves her, which you could say is the capriciousness of women. But it's more like, you know, it's not like he really had to sacrifice anything, you know, big because, you know, he gets like a hot girl. Like, you know, it's, it's a proper get the girl and save the world storyline. But for all that, I think it's a great film. I just, you know, looking back, it's quite difficult to see where she has her own agency and, and kind of does things off her own back. Totally agree. Absolutely a great little film, but very much a, a bloke's film, despite the the, uh, the main title. It should be uh, the Bruce Willis element. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Bruce Willis and his adventures with the fifth element. Yes, that would be. <laughs> well, I suppose the point is that you're quite right. There's, there's pretty much her and she's the only real female, apart from the, I suppose, the stewardess that takes a, a minor role in it. But it doesn't really feel like it's it's lacking so much. You can kind of watch it and get to the end and almost just brush it off and go, oh, well, you know, I've seen worse. At least it's it's beautiful to look at and all the characters in it are, are wonderfully engaging. And watching Gary Oldman chew up the set is always going to be, you know, enjoyable. Yeah, I mean, it's a guilty pleasure because I will forgive it pretty much anything. So <laughs> isn't that the definition yeah. of a guilty pleasure? Yes. Yep. Are there any texts you loved as a kid but reread and rewatch as an adult um, and see issues with them that you can't forgive um, despite the nostalgic affection for them? So I'll kick us off with one that's absolutely embarrassing and because you're both obviously more cultured, um, more discerning than I am, probably have no idea what this show is. And it, it, it is, it's a real corker. And uh, obviously, as a child, I didn't really pick up on. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> okay. You're building it up, Megan. Yeah, I know because it's embarrassing. So, and, and I still love it. Oh, uh, it's terrible. Okay. Fraggle. Lady Lovely Locks and the Pixie Tales. I don't know what that is. Yeah, I have never heard of that, but I, <laughs> I now really want to watch it. No, although yeah, is this an Australian thing? No, it's actually American. I don't know why <laughs> it, it managed to to come to Australia, but basically, it was um, you know how like a lot of those like kids shows are kind of designed around creating really good merchandise that the kids will want to buy. This, ah, like Transformers and things yeah, like that. Yeah, exactly. And this was uh, the studio's answer to uh, the girl problem in the sense of getting girls to want to buy the merchandise from an. A cartoon right so it's just terrible all the main protagonists are girls there's pretty much the only boy i can really remember isn't really a boy he's like well i mean he he's a masculine but he's a creature so he's not human i don't know if that counts uh, and he's the uh like helper of the the lady raven hair the mean one it's the stereotypical thing now you know now i look at it and i see it you know 
the good girls are beautiful and they have lighter colored hair and they all have pretty colors in their hair and then the evil woman lady raven hair you know she's got dark she's got black hair and you know she's supposed to be slightly less attractive and you know and i just watch it now and i'm like oh lord this is terrible but you know it, yeah i mean if i i saw it now i would just think this is absolute shite but because I loved it so much as a kid, I can't really let go of it. Oh, okay. I'll throw one into the mix. which, yeah. And I have to say, this is one I can let go of. <laughs> uh, but at the time, I was obsessed. Um, Narnia. Yep. So uh, I read Narnia uh, like in a stupidly short amount of time. I just tore through all the books. And I thought they were wonderful. And I was just, it was the beginning of my fantasy journey into the realms of of fantasy. (laughs) And I still haven't left them. But I got so obsessed with Narnia that I wrote a poem about it, which is so embarrassing. I got it still somewhere tucked away, never ever to see the light of day. And uh, while raving about Narnia to my mother, she said, you do realise the whole thing is a Christian allegory. And I said, how dare you? (laughs) How dare you ruin Narnia? Of course it's not a Christian allegory. What are you talking about? Probably not even realising what allegory meant. So years later, of course, it is anything. I mean, how could anyone not look at Narnia and go, God, that is the one huge christian allegory i mean it's like beating you over the head with christian allegory i mean like you have the jesus allegory lion for starters yeah i mean i was exactly the same i loved it and then as you know an adult i went back and went oh i see it now like oh it's so (laughs) obvious and you don't see it when you're a kid which is why it's insidious and evil it it worms its way (laughs) it's horrible christian values into your heart and you don't even realize until someone points them out and then you're like oh my god seduced (laughs) me it seduced me with its green valleys and beautiful sunlight and grand adventure and jesus allegory lions (laughs) jesus allegory lions (laughs) clearly i've not left this behind (laughs) clearly you need a t-shirt with that on so if we're talking about books that we read as a kid that now we'd kind of look back on um, and maybe forgive um, or not forgive, depending on how you would look at it. I'm going to go with two obscure ones. Um, for British pe- British um, kids, you might remember Dick Kingsmith's uh, King of the Vagabonds, which I loved as a kid because it was all about cats. Um, and it was about a young male cat who finds out that uh, is trying to find his place in life and you know, ends up fighting with the big tomcat down the road that turns out to be his father and, and stuff like that. And then goes on to, well, the cat equivalent of Mary, um, the the little girl that he grew up with two doors down in the other direction because she was cute. And it was it was really good and I really loved it. But I kind of think now if I if I reread it, I suspect it would just be a little bit to men kicking the ass of other men and women going along and doing what they say, because in the cat world, I suppose that's kind of what they do. And I remember at the time kind of feeling that, you know, it was a little bit not uncomfortable reading, but I, even at a young age, I kind of went, yeah, there's something missing here. And I think if I went back and reread it, I'd feel a little bit weird about it and how much it's all about how men are great and men are the leaders and go out and do stuff and the women just stay at home and have kittens. I think that would probably upset me. Are you sure you didn't on some level register that his name, Dick Kingsmith, kind of sounds like a porn name? <laughs> oh, you can't say that about him, beloved children's <laughs> author. But I see your point. Moving swiftly on (laughs) to Eva Ibbotson. Is that an acceptable name? 
Or is that also porn related? No, no I, that one you can passes. Go with yeah. Um, she wrote uh, various different tales, one of which I really loved, which is called Witch Witch, as in, um, okay, this doesn't work as well on radio as I thought it would do. Witch as in which one, and then witch as in someone who um, casts spells. So it's basically a story about a load of witches who get together and try to do the most magnificent spells possible to uh, win the love of a magician is the most powerful magician in the land and all this kind of jazz and there's the it was a sort of a cinderella story and you had the the weak one who who goes through her own journey and finds out that she can actually kick the ass of the the really beautiful really clever witch Uh, and i really like that because i like the story of someone going on a journey and building up their skills and finally coming into their confidence and everything like that but i think if i went back and read it now i'd just be annoyed that it's basically a load of women women coming to try and get a marriage proposal out of this bloke and actually if i reread it i suspect i would find that the little boy who's in it who's all cute and innocent i'm pretty sure he's actually the real hero of the story which i didn't really pick up on previously because i was just so happy that this woman went on a journey irrelevant of whether she got the man but i think now that i'm a bit older i might read it and kind of go mm, i'm not so sure uh, i feel a little uncomfortable reading this but it, I, I don't know i have to reread both and, and see what i think i'm going to throw one in here that i know that the two of you love and i'm going to uh, point out that uh tolkien has not got a good track record with creating interesting female characters with agency or female characters in general because Middle Earth, man. I mean, what's the ratio There's a lot there? of dudes in there. There is a serious amount of dudes in Middle Earth, gotta say. Yeah. Yeah, well, I'd agree with that. But, you know, he's a product of his time. And, you know, it's... There weren't a lot of maybe the women didn't have very much agency. I know it was it was like women were beginning to gain agency, as in like taking actual jobs, like in the war. But I don't I don't think it because he's always been very backward looking. He's always trying to create create a kind of nostalgic um, England, almost when women were like <laughs> kind of I either very homey or untouchable ethereal creatures like the elves in a way. And and you know that's just. It's just part of his mythology, I think. And you think I mean, that's it, okay? It, it's not him yeah, saying, well, like, oh, I wish I women were be... more background? What? <laughs> I don't know. Well, I don't think he should be um, beaten up for it because, he. I mean, he isn't writing today and we do have different standards and different, we all look for different things. And actually, I'm not saying that he was right to, uh, you know, to, to preclude women of agency from Middle Earth entirely, but, uh, you know, I, I'd like to, it is a work of magnificent genius and I kind of feel like kind of nitpicking on that. I know people would say that, you know, hardcore feminists would be like, you know, it's it's not nitpicking, it's really serious. But I feel, because I think my love for fantasy outweighs my, you know, hardcore feminist tendencies. So I'd probably say, yeah, it's, uh, it maybe doesn't stand up to, you know, close... You know, scrutiny if you're looking for a kind of equality and agency but you know it, it was written many many years ago um you know and and it's it's marvelous in other ways well just wading in on the uh, the uh, tolkien aspect here i would have to say that when i was at nine worlds i went to a very interesting um presentation by someone called quen took and they were talking about race within Tolkien and how all the orcs are described in ways which you can link back to very insulting 
descriptions of black people and people from China and Japan and all that kind of area. I think that's right. I haven't got my notes in front of me. But it was very interesting to look at the way Tolkien's vocabulary that he used in private letters describing other people, uh, you know, people of different races, was then replicated within his books to describe the the worst of the worst within his uh, within his his stories. And I don't I kind of came away from that feeling conflicted going, well, I didn't agree with all of Gwen's conclusions, but I did think that there were a few good points to be taken from them. There was enough evidence to, to suggest that obviously that was what Tolkien was thinking about. And I don't know whether this would affect me going forward. I mean, you've certainly got the Peter Jackson very visual films these days. So when you think of an orc, I must admit, you know, his representations tend to spring to mind. But rereading the books, I'm not sure how much it would it would jar with me reading the words and descriptions now that I've had the association made within my own head. I don't know whether I could overcome that or whether I would still enjoy it and just get wrapped up in it. Well, he might be responding to, you know, a much wider cultural, um, you know, kind of, I don't really know what an ethos really, it's not really an ethos, but, um, you know, at the time, I mean, I'm saying, not saying that's a good thing at all, but it may not have been totally conscious. Yeah. I mean, this is the thing. I, don't like the uh, excuse uh, to say that things are products of their time because obviously in order for change to happen and it means that whatever culture or time that you're in there's always someone who sees the injustice and pushes out outside of that so we don't get that change until some people think differently and therefore there is the potential to always think differently in any time or any culture or any surrounding context which maybe is harsh but i i do think that no i agree i believe that people get a bit of bit lenient but you see the thing is you know as charlotte was saying i think i was at the same talk you know you do see this this problem in some of Tolkien's stuff and then you look at someone like uh lovecraft who was also misogynist racist uh, uh, any kind of horrible thing was lovecraft um and he doesn't seem to get the same leeway as Tolkien does. And it's it's just interesting when you, I mean, if you, bought, you know, approved of the ar- argument that, uh, you know, they're products of their time, they're both products of their time, but is it acceptable? Or is well, Lord of the Rings acceptable no. because it's well-written? <laughs> well, because it founded a genre. <laughs> yeah. Well, having said that, I think Lovecraft is incredibly influential on modern day horror writers and you do get a lot of Lovecraftian horror. But I think like Megan says, it's interesting because obviously last year, about this time last year, I think, there was a huge controversy because the uh, the World Fantasy Award dropped H.P. Lovecraft as it's sort of the, the award that was modelled on him. And there was a quite a lot of outcry on both sides kind of going, yes, that's brilliant. No, that's a terrible idea. So I think today in modern society, we're still struggling with the whole idea of, you know, particularly race in within these kind of things. Now, the other one I was thinking of when we talk about kids stuff was, of course, Tom and Jerry, that someone was saying, because being a, a mother, I have lots of friends who have kids, and someone was saying that they wanted to show their kids the old Tom and Jerry and didn't realise just how terribly racist they were. And you kind of go, well, what do you do in the in this situation? Do you still show them and kind of explain, well, actually, you know, it's a product of its time? Or do you say, no, we're just not going to watch this or read this or do anything about it? And, you know, how do you handle it? It's a, it's a very difficult one for, for this generation, I think. Part of the problem is that we need to have the discussions and engagement with both the good and bad. So I would say definitely show it and talk about it. I think that's important because if children aren't exposed to seeing what, you know, doing something wrong is 
they might not necessarily recognise it in the real world or recognise that they do it themselves. That's my two cents. Let's make it a bit happier. (laughs) I was was thinking about, um, so, texts where you've sort of read them or seen the films and you've thought, okay, I can can see that they're really trying to be, you know, represent gender equality or they're really trying to make a statement about racism or something like this, but it it just, it's so heavy-handed and just just so bad that it kind of ruins it and now you realize oh my goodness like that was just that was just so obvious guys like come on do you have any of those well i had an example which i'm not entirely sure this is it's it's that great actually because i'm not sure that it was really making a statement about um racism because i think it probably is quite racist actually looking back but the little princess the film yep do you remember seeing that? So, yeah, that's full of stereotypes. I mean, you've got the evil spinster. So clearly spinsters, yeah, naturally, um, a woman without a man's influence turns into an evil spinster and runs an orphanage. Uh, all the fact that the the, the, uh, the the Indian, any Indian character calling her father Sahib, as if he's some kind of entitled to be to call be called that and and then you know presenting india as a magical land instead of a colonized country stripped of its heritage by foreign invaders Uh, i mean that's that was a bit of an issue but I, i remember it's such a it's such a magical film and it's and she's so perfect and pretty and as a child i was like oh this is such a wonderful film and oh they wake up to that wonderful banquet which i noticed prepared by an Indian but lacks any kind of Indian food which is that always struck me as slightly odd it's got sausages in it which aren't particularly Indian um and and the whole thing of the the oppressed black girl who is shoved up in the attic to clean the whole place I mean it's just I feel like they were trying to maybe make some kind of statement about you know actually she's really nice and it's not her fault that she's been shoved up in the attic but it it kind of falls a bit flat really I don't think it's it's none of it was very um you know maybe it, you're right it's is what you're talking about going back to heavy-handed it is heavy-handed and I'm not entirely sure that it it, it is a particularly progressive representation well, that reminded me of, again, going back to Nine Worlds, and I forget what the name of this um, this lecture was, but it was basically about disability and, you know, how to write disabled characters and how to work them into the plot line. And there was, there was one statement I remember them saying, which was basically, look, don't make your disabled character the chosen one with all of the magical powers and that their disability is basically just leading to some fantastical magical ability. So, and I kind of thought about this and I thought, well, you know, I know disabled people and I'm sure I could ask them, but do they all of when I was a kid growing up I really wanted to be the magical chosen one who you know had the supreme powers and had everybody go "Ooh, that'd be fantastic because I think that's a natural part of growing up when you're trying to find your place in society and trying to excel above your peers in a very difficult and rigorous education system and I just found it interesting that the, the plea from disabled people these days is don't make us magical we just want to be normal so I, I kind of wondered if there's been a, a, group, a load of people who've grown up being able-bodied have gone oh well I really enjoy being the chosen one as a kid that's clearly what you know somebody who has a disability would want so that's what I'll write for them and it's kind of backfired a little bit because the, the people with disabilities are trying to go the other way and go, no no we just want to be normal that's fine you know we don't mind not having magical powers we want to be normal and worthwhile and within the text and you know t- having a real contribution rather than being seen as the, the strange one 
So it is interesting how people try to address these balances. And like Lucy said, sometimes they do it so heavy handedly that you just go, oh, that's quite painful. Yeah, it's almost it has the reverse effect, actually. When you look back on it, you just think, Christ, that was badly (laughs) done. Absolutely. (laughs) I must admit, if I if I had to pick one to come under this category um, and this will be controversial, I'd have to pick Frozen. Because I kind of see um, what Disney were doing. And the first time I watched it, I was quite blown away by it, going, oh, wow. So, you know, that's the twist. And I never saw that coming because I expected it. I had my expectations of a Disney film that it would be this plot. And it didn't follow that expectation. And I thought it was brilliant the first couple of times I watched it. And then when I actually sat and watched it, I went, you know, I'm not so sure that it is as positive as I feel it is. Because everybody, all the girls I know, tend to like Elsa. But she's actually the much, much weaker character. And the much better role model is Anna, who goes out there, who gets stuff done. She doesn't have magical powers, but still manages to survive the snow, makes friends, inspires confidence and trust. And I just kind of feel like they've gone so far in trying to have this idea about sisterly love and two women standing on their own that they've not actually thought about what the two women should really be like. They've they've kind of... It, it's good, and I'm glad it's a step in the right direction, but I still kind of feel like they they've just kind of come at it slightly askew and they need to think carefully about the next proper kick-ass princess that they have oh well i i think they did elsa a great disservice by not exploring her character further i thought she was brilliant at the beginning i thought she could just be so good and in the end she's kind of overwhelmed like knocked out by her own ice chandelier and dragged off to a prison by men and Mm. you're like oh jesus this could have been so good and also get rid of the love interests completely i mean it was quite funny that you know elsa was like what are you doing why are you falling in love with that guy you've only just met and they had a whole song about it because it is i mean disney is mocking its own film because it is ridiculous like love at first sight um but you know it could have been more like um brave for example which i always lord for having a non um stereotypical uh central relationship which is of course you know the relationship between mother and daughter i mean how many children's films actually explore those kind of relationships which is actually a much more important relationship than any you know romantic love that you strike up it's it's far stronger and has deeper roots and i think it should be really um you know applauded for for exploring that and also how good not to have a a bad stepmother as well i think that's uh, if you follow the writings of Marina Warner and other people like that, I think they also kind of say, well, look, you know, why is the stepmother always, you know, unfairly criticised and whatever? And I think there was, um, for Hansel and Gretel, there was, if you look at the the way that the tale developed and how it was published in all the different editions, the originally the mother and father left both of the kids out on their joint decision whereas now if you read it it's the evil stepmother convincing the the weak and and, you know feeble father they should leave the children out and all this kind of thing so i think like you say it's nice to have the mother-daughter relationship i think brave does it really well which counterbalances all the previous ones of how stepmothers and people are, are terrible so what we really need now is a really good strong disney princess that doesn't need anybody at all um and a really good stepmother as well i think that'd be a brilliant a brilliant movie come on disney that's what we're looking for Now, um, just sort of to wrap it up, I think uh, these tropes that we see and that we have, you know, kind of made our show around, not not complaining about as such, but drawing attention to, um, I think that the one bonus we can say for all of this is that they make excellent satire. So 
You know, I mean, one of my favourite ones uh, is Galaxy Quest, and if you don't like it, then um, I, you're a cold, dead fish. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> because it's a great film. Um, but, you know, so you have the, that, you know, the whole thing with Uhura in original series Star Trek, and she's on the bridge. She's in, you know, the command team, uh, but she's essentially a phone operator, let's be real. She's communications, really, I mean, she answers the phone looks pretty uh and so this is something that then galaxy quest can make fun of when you have um gwen just going and repeating whatever the the computer says and then they all say you know stop it we can hear the computer she's like this is my one job it's the only thing that i get to do so i'm gonna do it and that is (laughs) at least one silver lining from all of this well, the uh, obviously the, the one that really springs to mind first is Terry Pratchett, the master of satire. I mean, every disc, almost every Discworld book is is a, Discworld itself is a satire of our uh, you know <laughs> capitalist society, and he covers every base, you know, from the postal service to banking to newspapers, um, you know, and even turning kind of fairy tale tropes on their heads, like um, Witches Abroad with the, the frog and the princess, that whole kind of idea. And I mean, you can find a, a kind of, a, I would say it's more than a piss take. It's much cleverer than just a piss take. It, it's always, he's, Terry Pratchett was always brilliant at kind of delving beneath the strata of society into actual how humans interact with other humans and exposing the often ridiculous nature of of that interaction. Well, I once heard someone say that Terry Pratchett wasn't a fantasy writer. He was a satirical writer who chose to write in fantasy, which I think is a very accurate description of him. It's just everything within his fantasy world has some relevance to the current political climate or to you know, gender inequality or something like that. And as Lucy says, he takes all the tropes and turns them on the head and ma- manages to make a very valid criticism of stories that have gone before and I mean being a, a fan of fairy tales my absolute favorite project that I listen or read to over and over again is Witches Abroad because it's just so beautiful the way he turns everything on his head and I think that's it's almost exactly the same as Megan was saying about Uhura being on the bridge and then um, Sigourney Weaver's character in Galaxy Quest doing exactly the same and going yeah but it's the only thing I've got to do you definitely get that kind of level of humor and biting satire in, in Pratchett I'd agree with that what's yours was oh, mine it, yeah uh, i couldn't think of any science fiction or fantasy ones the only ones that i could think of were um the austin powers movies which i thought were very good and and um turned everything on its head oh that's was, yes of course like james it's like the the satire of so piss take of james bond it is but then i also thought about the pierce brosnan bond movies and i thought um my friend mark west would agree with me here because he's a, a big fan of roger moore in particular but just looking at guilty pleasures and stuff you look back with with an open mind i think the brosnan bond movies were very good at taking the terribly sexist and racist and just awful um previous films that everybody loved and managing to just make a little bit of a joke out of it and continue the franchise by saying, well, look, they were really terrible and we're going to do a couple of jokes here, um, but we're not going to, you know, really focus on it and we're just going to kind of move it along and and make it a little bit more lighthearted, whereas obviously the Daniel Craig stuff is far more gritty. Um, And I just kind of like the fact that they acknowledged it in the Brosnan stuff and made it a little bit camp, because that's why I thought about it when Megan was talking about, you know, stuff that is a little bit more camp and a bit more parody. That's what made me think of the Bond stuff. Um, I, I thought Christmas only comes once a year. Oh, Lord, yes, <laughs> exactly. 
<laughs> and you don't really get that in in the new um Daniel Craig ones he's definitely much grittier and, and much I, harder do you know what I actually miss that though because it's an institution James Bond's an institution yeah okay the women just are sex objects but <laughs> I kind of feel like the Daniel Craig films take the fun out of James Bond a bit oh. I mean, just, you know yeah. like there's a lot yeah. of action adventure films already I kind of have to agree with you Lucy on that one I I like a bit of the silliness then I, I stand alone in, in my uh, my dislike of the, the previous Bonds. Well, of course, scary movies uh, are just perfect mistakes of those ridiculous women running around getting... I'm just, I've got this vision of, uh, you know, Scream. <laughs> yeah. The original scary movie version of Scream <laughs> where, she, where he plunges the, the knife into her breast and pulls her breast implant out. Oh, thank you, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's so ridiculous and it but just I, really mocks all those stupid uh, horror movie tropes especially the ones surrounding women well the original yeah the the first scary movie i think my favorite one was where they had like a selection of weapons lined up like a knife and a chainsaw and then they had at the end a banana and the woman r- catches the banana up and dashes yeah. out the door and we're like oh for goodness sake but the weird <laughs> The weird thing is that I did enjoy the first scary movie. I didn't write like the the rest of them. I thought they were just, oh, they just descended to being gross and thoughtless. But in a weird way, scary movie was a parody of um, Scream, which was itself a parody of all the sort of previous horror movies that had come before. So it, it was kind of, kind of building on that. And I almost feel that the Scream, uh, sorry, the scary movie movies were not really valid when you have things like Scream, which was an intelligent parody of previous um, horror movies. And in a certain extent, um, Buffy, because they always said that, I remember reading that Joss Whedon had always said that the idea for Buffy was, what if the blonde girl, instead of grabbing the banana and screaming and running out of the house, actually turned around and beat the serial killer or the vampire or the werewolf or whatever was after them? And coming into Buffy, knowing that, that's always how I, I pictured it as a sort of, satire and parody of all the previous movies that had gone before that then just developed into something much bigger so yeah I, I like Lucy's point about some of the scary movie bits were just beautifully beautifully terrible but again I, I think it was on the back of much cleverer parody and satire that, uh, that yeah it I, I'd agree I'd agree with that and you know anything about Buffy is just great uh, apart from I, the we managed to issues. work Buffy in we, we oh, have to work Buffy in every episode I feel like my role is to is to work Buffy, Jem Williams, and or Sarah Pimbra into everything I can possibly say. <laughs> There's going to be at least one reference to one of them in in each podcast. I feel. So, do we think Buffy counts as a guilty pleasure? I suppose these days it would do because it looks so dated. So I think I think previously it was the height of fashion and it was really really cool. Really? Um, and nothing that Willow I- wore was ever cool. <laughs> Well, what about that sexy black number? No, no, Bad Willow was great. Bad oh, Willow well, was really yeah. good. Well, there you are. <laughs> Except for the green eyeshadow, but yeah. But it's interesting. I don't know how people these days view Buffy. I suppose it just has such a fond place in my heart that I always, you know, see it with um, with affection. But I, I suppose there would be some people, if you look at it now, it probably looks a bit dated, a bit stilted. Uh, we watched Serenity last night and the choreography with Summer Glau and, uh, and Fighting Off the Reavers was brilliant. And I suppose if you look back at Buffy, a little bit of it would look a little bit um, staged quite a lot. Because, it, But it, then it's supposed to be. That's part of the charm of it. It's like looking back at all the old horror movies and being able to see the sets shake as the actors crash into them or, or to see, you know, the, yep. the slipper band and the underneath the werewolf costume, that kind of thing. Or, or the, so you know, the styrofoam rocks in Star Trek. And uh, my personal favourite was the... Uh, 
clearly just like aluminium foil scrunched up and then on a piece of string in uh, the original Lost in Space and you can see them it's just like dangling them and they're supposed to be asteroids. It's hilarious. But on that note, I went to somewhere called Peak Cavern, which is also known as the Devil's Ass Cavern, which is in Derbyshire. And it was where they filmed um, The Silver Chair, which was one of the Narnia books that Lucy was talking about earlier. And uh, they still they still have a rock there because apparently when the casting, uh, sorry, when the film crew turned up, they looked at this huge, magnificent uh, cave that had been hollowed out through eons and went, yeah, the rocks don't look very realistic. We're going to make our own ones out of latex <laughs> and piled up a load of rocks. And then when they left, they left them behind. So now the tour guys point out, here are the rocks that they thought were more appropriate for this particular BBC production than the actual rocks they were standing on. So I always <laughs> thought that was quite sweet. And on that note... <laughs> that is a, an interesting anecdote to, to finish with, I suppose. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper. Help us out by subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes. Be sure to check out breakingtheglassliver.com for all episode notes in our archives.